Hey, before we dive in, I want to let you know that this podcast is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. And there's some great shows in this network that I think you'd enjoy. One that I'm listening to right now is Songtown on Songwriting, which is a podcast hosted by hit songwriters Marty Dodson and Clay Mills. Together, they have a combined 15 number one songs and have more than 250 songs recorded. Now, there's a recent episode they just put out, which I want to I put on your radar, which is called Breaking Lyric Rules. This is exactly what it sounds like. Everybody wants to have the guts to break rules in lyric writing, but few do. Few take the initiative to break the rules of lyric writing like Marty and Clay, and they talk all about it in this brand new episode. So make sure you check that out. By the way, while I have your attention, I want to talk about something else, which is ZipRecruiter. You know, this is a crazy time right now for small businesses, for any business, and odds are you probably don't have the time to be searching for great talent. It's too much work, and you need to be focusing on other things. So go to ZipRecruiter.com to get the job done there. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So if you want to do something that's going to make me look at, even even if you're never going to use ZipRecruiter ever, do this. Do this for me. Go to www.ziprecruiter.com slash Zach and just check it out. Go to the link. It's going to make me look good and just read a little bit about it. Check it out because I think there may come a time where you will be glad that you have the knowledge of ZipRecruiter. It might be something you need one day and why not be prepared now? Okay, that's all I'm going to say. That's enough of the ads. Let's dive in. Here we go. The Zach Kuhn Show. You know, this is really exciting. Jody is someone whose name has come up in many episodes on this podcast, and I'm so excited that we finally have him on. It took a minute, but here we are, Jody Williams on the podcast. You know, Jody is one of those guys that is just so deeply embedded in the Nashville community. I mean, there should be a there should be a statue of him somewhere. I mean, he's done it all. He's seen it all. He just launched his own publishing venture. And by the way, did you know, here's a fun fact about Jody, he was almost against Liz Rose writing with Taylor Swift. We talk about it all in this episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Okay, here we go. Let's dive in. By the way, I'm excited to have you on the podcast this week because I've had Beth Laird on, and she's uh-huh. talked about you on the show. I feel like I've, I, you've been mentioned peripherally by many people, so I think it, it's a, it's about time that we've made it happen. Well, thank you. I, I just want to say, I've uh, once I started following uh, what you're doing on the Nashville Briefing and, and watching some of the podcasts you've done, uh, you do a great job, and and uh, I'm a I'm a big believer in. Uh, you know, all of us communicating and reading, reading out of the same hymn book, you know, as they say, um, singing out of the same hymn book, as they say, but uh, you do a great job of, of uh, keeping us all together, for sure. Well, thank you so much. That That's so kind. Um, okay, I just want to dive right in here. So I think the, the, you know, one of the coolest things is I think your dad, I had no idea about this, was the founder of Martha White Flower, or he bought, he purchased the Nashville Royal Mills Flower Company and turned it into Martha White. This blows my mind, right? Was he the one who brought in flattened Scruggs to the Opry, or how? How did they? What, what, what's the story here? Well, the, I'll try to say this as briefly as possible. But my my uh, my dad's family, my dad and my my uncle and my grandfather. They they my uncle and and 
father were raised in Smithville, Tennessee, in that area. <clears throat> so my grandfather had an opportunity. He wanted to get into this business of flour milling. And back in the 40s, you know, baking was a, I mean, you know, during the pandemic, baking really came back. But back in the 40s, everybody baked. So flour and, and cornmeal and things like that were a big deal, much bigger deal than they were like in later years. And so um, my grandfather uh, had the opportunity to buy this mill called the Royal Flour Mill. And my, my, he brought along his, his sons, my dad and my uncle, and they basically bought it and they renamed, they renamed it Martha White. That's a, that's a whole nother story. I'll, I'll sort of leave that alone, but they renamed it Martha White and, and well, basically it was their best selling product, right? The flower, the Martha White flower was their best, the company's best selling product, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I think too, that, that the, the way I understood it was that the the guy who sold the mill to my grandfather had a daughter named Martha White, and they were such great friends that that's that's where that name came from. Holy cow! And that was actually her picture, the little on, baby on picture. the flower. Yeah, but um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure how much of that is. I have it. I'm not sure I have that completely right, but I, that's kind of what I always understood growing up. So when my so my uh. So they, they buy the, the company, they move to Nashville, and the, the Grand Ole Opry was a big deal back then. Of course, and, yeah. And so um, my my uncle was the marketing guy, and my father was the commodities broker. So my, my father was the one buying all the raw corn and wheat and getting it to the mills and getting the product made. And my uncle was the one saying, how are we going to sell this? So he thought, well, let's get it. Let's get this product on the Grand Ole Opry. And and so um, what had happened was Bill Monroe had just fired Flatten Scruggs from his band. And, and my, uncle wa- my uncle had, had figured out that Flatten Scruggs would be a great, great spokespeople for the product and wanted to like buy time on the Grand Ole Opry. And Bill Monroe was such a big deal at the Opry at the time that he kept Flatten Scruggs off the Opry for a long period of time. Right. And so then finally those days sort of, ended and my uncle was successful and got flattened Scruggs on, on, and the show is, you know, it was called the Martha White portion of the Grand Ole Opry. It's iconic. It's one of my favorite sections to go back and watch because the music is incredible, of course. And then the Martha White commercials are hilarious to watch, possibly because they're just kind of sexist and would never fly today. There's something to them. That's, that's just funny to, to watch them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're still, they're still charming and, and all of that. My, my uncle was smart enough to um, uh, with, he, he, he was talking to somebody at the ad agency who had the Martha White account, who had a songwriter working at the ad agency. That songwriter wrote the theme, the Martha, the Martha White theme. Right, that they would that, play every episode. That, that later became an iconic, you know, one of the most iconic songs in bluegrass music. And, uh, but anyway, once once they got on the Opry, they had this, you know, uh, clear channel going out further than, than the product could reach all over the country. So the product grew in popularity like crazy. And then they went into other product lines of cake mixes and instant biscuit mix and stuff like that. And, um, and uh, was the, the company was later sold in the early 70s um, and then was part of a leverage buyout of the of the big conglomerate that bought it. And now Pillsbury owns Martha White. 
And I think if my if my uncle and grandfather and father knew that Pillsbury owned Martha White, they would certainly turn over in their graves for sure. Really, you think so? Because they wanted to stay like a family company, or they didn't want to go to be so corporate. Well, that, that Pillsbury was such a huge competitor of theirs. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. And yeah. your and your was it your father, your grandfather who coined the phrase "Goodness gracious, it's good." That you know, I don't, I don't think I. I don't know it was a, that it was a family member that did that. If, if it was a family member, it was probably my uncle, Cohen. Holy cow. Yeah. See, this, is, this is so interesting because I loved watching the, the Flat Scruggs show on YouTube when I was younger, and I loved seeing those commercials. Oh, wow. And yeah, this, yeah. This I, I love watching those, those old uh, Flat and Scruggs TV shows for sure. They're incredible, and I think it's the longest-running radio sponsorship, period, I believe. I, I, it's, it's either that or Carnation Milk. Uh, Carnation Milk. I, I'm not sure if they're still a sponsor or not, but they they were the longest running for a long time. It might be Martha White now. That's so cool! Holy cow! Okay, so you went to the University of Denver and you studied advertising, which I think is interesting. Did you think you were going to go into advertising? And did what, what did you learn with an advertising degree that you that you use today? Anything? Well, I've I've always loved how how people get connected to things. And I've always been interested in, you know, photography and and I love watching commercials on TV. I just, you know, when a good commercial comes on TV, I just go, man, the people in that room that thought that one up, that was a good day. You know, just like songwriters do today. And um, uh, actually, when I went to college, I just wanted to have fun and play in a bluegrass band, which is what I did in um, uh, Denver. And I went only went to one year of college. My dad never went to college. So when I called him and I said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm ready to go to work. And at that time I was working in a record store. Peaches. Record. Peaches. And I wanted, I had this grand idea to open up a Peaches in, in uh, Nashville. And so my, my dad was an entrepreneur. He said, well, you don't need to go to college. If you're ready to go to work, let's, let's, let's hammer out this idea of your record store. So then I, so I came home from Denver and, my, I went to I went to high school with David and Donnie Preston, who is Francis Preston's sons. Okay, course, yeah. so I, I used to hang out at at their house in high school, and and um, you know Mrs. Preston was David and Donnie's mom. I mean, I knew she did something in the music business, but that, I wasn't impressed by that, and I, I wasn't I didn't even, I kind of didn't even care. Um, but then my my dad goes, why don't you go? When I got back home, he said, why don't you go talk to Francis? And she knows all about the music business and you know her and she knows you. So why don't you go talk to her and see if she can give you any advice? And so I went there and I said, Mrs. Preston, I think this is going to be a, this could be really cool. I've got, there's a location that's available on Elliston place. And there really was at that time that would be great for this. And she said, this was 76. And she said, well, we're going into a recession and people are not going to buy music. They're going to buy food. You know, they're, they're not, you know, it's a, it would be a hard, it would be a down market to start a business in. You want to be in an up market when you start any business. And I said, okay, well, okay. And she said, well, why don't, why don't you, why don't you uh, work, work here at BMI, like in the mailroom, like as an intern, like I'll pay you, like, like she was just, just like off the top of her head, like it wasn't any big grand plan or anything. And this, this was not the information that I was wanting to get from Francis Preston. But how life changing. <laughs> well, tell me about it. So I was, um, I, I basically realized later that it was probably a setup 
between my dad and Francis, this whole thing. And, um, and that was fine. And I, and I, I went to work at BMI in the, in the mailroom. Now was Francis, I mean, Francis is such an iconic character that like, I feel like I don't have this connection to because she wasn't really around obviously when I came to Nashville, but this feels like your first meeting in Nashville. Granted, you grew up in the city, but I remember like my first meeting in Nashville, I was very intimidated and, you know, it felt like this huge deal walking into an office on Music Row. You were walking to, walking to BMI. Was Francis disarming? Were you kind of intimidated going in, pitching this record store idea to one of the most powerful people on Music Row? Or was that kind of lost on you? No, it was it was David and Donnie's mom who I've hung out in their kitchen. It and casual. It, it was it was a boring meeting at best. It, it was it was low key. Yeah, it was it was totally I was not all keyed up. I mean, I wasn't nervous at all. She was a she was like my friend, you know. I went yeah. on I went on trips with them and stuff. That's you know, family trips and stuff. So um it was it was totally cool. And then once I got in there, um, you know, I've been I've been working at Peaches Records. I ran their country department because I was from Nashville. You know, I wasn't a huge country music fan at that time. I was more of a I was more of a real classic country fan. And I loved Johnny Cash and I loved Dolly Parton and I loved bluegrass music. And in the mid 70s, the Austin, Texas movement had really was really on fire. And and so we had a lot. You know, I was doing all of that type of singer songwriter music at um, uh, at Peaches. And then so there I, there I was walking the halls of BMI doing, you know, in the mailroom. And in walks Jimmy Buffett and Jerry Jeff Walker and Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. I mean, there they are. I mean, they're right there. He's <laughs> standing right there. And I'm like, freak, I'm 20 years old and I'm freaking out. I mean, these are my, these are my total heroes. And they're coming to see Francis to get advance checks, you know, from BMI or whatever they were doing. Right. Or, or Roger Sovine, who was another guy who, who worked, uh, I, I work really closely with there too. And, and, um, so I, I didn't get to really know those guys at that time, but I, I did in later years. And um, but I thought, oh, this is the end. This is what the inside of the music business really looks like. This is really part of it because Francis was so beloved, you know, such an such a figure, such, such, such a figure and such a supporter yeah. of of all these all this great music. And um, yeah, that that was that was incredible. And then the other the other great thing about BMI is that I. I walk out of the mailroom one day and and basically there's this super cute girl that was just hired as the receptionist. And I said, well, I'm, we're going to get to know each other as fast as I can. And and we did, we, we became great friends and then we, we got married and we've been married for 42 years. So that desk deserves a plaque. I don't know if that desk still exists that she sat at, but that deserves a plaque. Of a of a holy, holy cow! What a, what a great story! So yeah. what so what were you doing in the mailroom? Like what was the task? Was it literally? I mean, then I guess it was more of a literal mailroom. I'm assuming, right? You actually well, delivered the mail. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, you there was a you know there, this was pre-internet, you know, and pre pre all of that. So it, there was a lot of mail, you know, because we we were a regional office for BMI. And there were hundreds, and that at that time hundreds. Mailroom was a real job. It, that it was, was a real. You yeah, it was a real job. And we only had about uh, a staff of about maybe 15 people <clears throat> total in that in that department. But when I wasn't doing that, I did change of addresses. So when, when a writer would change his address, they'd send a form in and I would type these three by five index cards and file them in four different places and send one to New York and, you know, 
all that type of thing. Okay, so you so not to jump ahead, but but there's so much stuff I want to talk about. So you would jump around from publishing companies, sort of like every two years. I've heard you say that you yes. would go, you'd work for like Charlie Daniels, and then you work for Chapel, and then you'd work somewhere else. And I've heard you say that you really feel like you got your education in song plugging at Tree Music. What was about what was it about Tree that was so special at the time? Like, what, what did you learn about song plugging there that that you didn't learn elsewhere? What what was happening at Tree at the time? Well, it was the biggest company, and 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 still still is. You know, the, the yeah, yeah. With, with the most staff songwriters are certainly uh, Warner Chapel and and Sony sort of rival each other uh, as it pertains to probably number of writers. But but back then, um, and this was when I was there. It was the mid '80s, uh, early to mid '80s, and the best song pluggers worked there. So there, there were there were a couple of people there that just that were just so they knew how to listen to songs and they knew how to communicate to the writer if the song didn't hit the mark and they knew how to direct the writer to go back and fix it without rewriting the song themselves. And I got to learn from watching those guys. And then, you know, I always, I've always said that my own opinion about music, I've always done well by acknowledging my own opinion about music. It's just, it's just another guy's opinion. I mean, everybody's got one. So why not? Let's let's use mine. You know, that's kind of how I've approached it. And it it did serve me pretty well. And I'm just music. And then there were times, you know, the, the great thing about Sony, because there were there were so many staff writers and then so many writers trying to get in. So you're auditioning writers and constantly and you make mistakes when you do that. I have a, I had a meeting one time with Ashley Cleveland, who later became just a very prominent Christian artist, and she was she was kind of like a female John Hyatt or something like that. At that time, she I knew she was great, but I I didn't know what to do with her, and I didn't know how to tell her that. And and I just remember, and I've talked with her about this since. I I, I remember her leaving the office, going, I I probably shouldn't have, or I should have said these things a different way. I, I wasn't mean spirited at all, but. I just didn't have my deal down at that time. And so because the next day somebody else would walk in, you just get, you learn to get better because you're working those muscles. What was your first cut? Oh my gosh. My first cut was, um, uh, it was a Charlie Daniels song and the artist was Lee Hazelwood on MCA records. Uh, Lee, Lee Hazelwood was, was best known as the producer of, these boots were made for walking by Nancy Sinatra. And then he, then he was an artist. And so that's, that was, I, that's what I recall as my first cut. And was that, I mean, that had to be the best feeling ever, right? That was, yeah. Yeah. I was working for Charlie Daniels at, at, and basically it was his management company with this tiny desk drawer publishing company. And I, I couldn't, I was only pitching the songs that Charlie didn't want to cut. So I had the sort of the next level down, but I would cut, I would go pitch the songs that were album cuts on Charlie's records that weren't singles because nobody knew that they had been out if they weren't big Charlie Daniels fans. Right, right, right. So those were the ones I had the best luck with. Yeah, it was great. I mean, golly, ask any song plugger. Just it, it motivates you forever. That's the coolest thing. So when I had Dale Bryan on the podcast, he would talk about how his parents would have these big meals where they would invite artists over and they would feed them and then they would play them songs and that was the best way to get their songs cut because if they could if they could get them over at the house, feed them, 
They were in their, you know, they were in their hands and they could pitch them songs all night. When you're working at Tree, when you're learning how to become a song plugger and just in your career, anything that you have found that is, is the most efficient way to get songs cut or to pitch them, is it sitting one-on-one with the artist? Is it, getting, is it getting them to the manager? Is it totally different every time? Any tips and strategies that, that, that you picked up at Tree or along the way? Yeah, especially at Tree, I learned that it's all of the above. And there, there are certain relationships you're going to have with record producers and certain A&R people, and you're going to become friends. And those are going to be outlets that are going to be easier for you to go get cuts through. And so, you, you know, you're just trying to be friendly to everybody and you're trying to, to, and you're, I'm, you know, you're never walking in going, man, this is a hit. You, you know, if you don't, if you don't cut this on your artist, you know, something's wrong with, you know, you don't ever do that. It's just, you just got to play the song and know that 199 times out of 100, they're going to say no. And you can't let that get to you. You just keep moving on. But I will, bringing up Dell, you know, Dell was one of the writer reps at BMI when, it, when I was in the mailroom. And when the light bulb went off for me to become a publisher, Dell grabbed me one day out of the mailroom and we went to the, what was called the listening room. We weren't allowed to have stereos in our offices at BMI at that time. That really? Why? Because there was a listening room you went to to listen to the music. That's, That's where you went. Yes. That's yeah. where you went. <laughs> and it was just incredible, you know, sound system. So Dell said, these are some new songs of my parents. Let's figure, you, you know, let's figure out where these ought to be placed. Who, what artists could do them? And I thought, it, I said, Dell, is this, is this kind of what, this is what publishers do? Like this, they said, yeah, this is, this is exactly what publishers do. And I thought, that's what I want to do. That's, that was the moment. I'll never forget it listening to Budlow and Felice songs and trying to figure out with Dell who should cut them. That is so cool. Holy cow. I, I love that. So, okay. So you're at tree and then you eventually you go to MCA, you get this call to run MCA yeah. and you're working at MCA, MCA merges with Polydor and you're now out um, looking for another job. And I've heard you say that you never wanted to start your own company, but that's, a, that's what you ended up doing. But what, to me, starting your own company is like, like to me, you, it seems like you were at the right time. You had all this experience. Why, why do you not want to start your own company? I, I always liked working for people. I didn't want all the headache of, of having to uh, sign a lease and get a phone system and buy audio equipment and wonder if it was going to work or not. You know, we're, if, if, my, if, my, if, if I was a, actually a good enough publisher to do this on my own. So when you know, after the merger, a few of us lost our jobs. I lost my job. I called uh, BMI. They didn't need me back. I called Connie Bradley at ASCAP. She didn't uh, need anybody at that time. So I called Donna Hilly, uh, who I'd worked for at uh, Tree, and she didn't need she didn't need me. And she said, Jody, all of your skills are in publishing and song plugging. Start your company, put some skin in the game, get it started and then come back and see me and we'll talk about how we can support you. We might do a joint venture with you or something, but you've got to get it going because I'm not just going to fund you on a whim. You know, you've got to show that you best advice that she pushed you to do this was, was this the best advice you could have been given at that time? Yeah, it was, it was unreal. It was, it was incredible advice. And so I, I, uh, I told my wife, I'm going to take X amount of dollars out of savings, not a lot. And I'm, and by the time this money is spent on this publishing company, I'll either have a joint venture or a job somewhere else. I'm not going to, in other words, I'm not going to lose more than this much money. Um, and. Okay. Wait, so did you say that to try to convince her that like, were you just saying things to try to convince her or did you actually believe in your heart and your gut? 
I'm not spending more than this. Like, would you have spent more than that if it came to that? Or were you just kind of saying whatever you needed to say? To I get don't think okay with this. No, I, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have because my dad always instilled in me like, don't don't think you've got to spend your own money. Own half the company and get a partner. You know, you do the sweat equity and put up a little money and find a partner to put up most of the money and you make it work. But don't don't risk your home. Your entire. You know, don't risk your house and your all that stuff, you know. And so that's that's the way I approached it. And but I will say when I so I leased a little a little office suite and when and I thought, oh, gosh, here I'm going to sign a lease on. I'm I'm signing. I'm starting a publishing company. I just still couldn't believe it. So the moment my pen left the paper of that lease, something clicked in me and I said, by God, I'm going to make this sucker work. I mean, I just I was like telling myself, you're this is it. There's no turning back. You're going to make it work. And of course, it took it took two years before you even have an inkling that it's working. So you just wake up every day and you go back in there and you, you start meeting people. And all my relationships were with, you know, as when writers would lose a deal at tree or lose a deal at uh, Warner brothers music, you know, I would, I would call them and say, come over here let me pitch some of your songs. And, you know, let, that how let, you start out when you start out those first couple months, is it just yeah. keeping up with the writers who are, who maybe like you said, just lost their deal or maybe you're finding independent writers. Like, like what's the work looking like in those first couple months? Yeah, I called Pat McLaughlin, who is one of my dear friends for many, many years. And he he was in and out of publishing deals. He didn't really want a publishing deal. And I went over to his house and I said, let me let me peruse your catalog and I'm going to get 10 songs. And if I if I get one cut, will you split the publishing with me? And he said, sure. And it was a handshake. So um, and so I. You know, I got a song cut by Alan Jackson. Holy and man. then I met then I met a writer named Ronnie Gilbo, and he had he he owned all the, all of his publishing on a song that Shelley Wright had just cut, and I said and I really liked Ronnie's writing. I said I tell you what, if you bring that song into my company, the, the cut, I'll I'll give you a writer's I'll give you a deal, and then, then at that point I had to like okay start paying him a draw, so th- then I had to pay a little bit more money. So, but but. After a few months, we had this Alan Jackson cut. This was this was a couple of years, actually a couple of years into it. We had an Alan Jackson cut. We had, uh, I, I was paying Ronnie and I thought, and then, then they did a video of the, of the Shelley Wright song. It was going to be a single. Holy cow. So I thought, I'm going to go, I'm going to go have a meeting with Donna Hilly now. I'm going to go back to Donna Hilly. So I went in and I said, I've got an Alan Jackson cut. I've got, look, let's watch this video on Shelley Wright. I own the publishing on that. And she said, okay, let's do a joint venture. Just like that. So it worked. She gave you this advice. She stood by it. She said, go out and do something. And you she did. did. And then and then she signed to a joint venture. So you, you know, you signed Liz Rose at some point mm-hmm. with this company. And you told Liz not to write with Taylor Swift or not to write with her as often as she was. Or maybe it wasn't that aggressive, but you said Liz. There's a lot of other people you can write with. Are you sure you want to be spending all your time with this with this young kid? Do you ever think about how crazy that was? That I mean, you were probably in the right. You were probably a smart publisher to say that. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Do you ever think about how crazy it was that you could have gotten in the way of that? Well, you know, Liz Liz Rose and I have such a good relationship. I would really listen to her, 
and and I I would never do what she I, I rarely did what she you know she wanted to do something I, I I didn't stand in the way but I did question it because Taylor had just lost her development deal at RCA there were no teenagers on the radio back then at all um, the songs they were writing were were okay I thought but they weren't like you know, smashes or anything. So I, I would question it. I'd say, you know, you know, these, these three people want to write with you and, you know, you've booked all this time with Taylor. And then she came to me one day and she said, me and Taylor are about to, we're about to turn a corner and you just got to bear with me for a few more weeks. And I said, okay, I didn't, I mean, I just sort of shut up about it. I, I left him alone. And of course we loved seeing Taylor come in the office. She was, you know, she was just a, Great it was just the, just a great presence, and just she was just awesome. Um, so it you know, uh, about maybe two weeks after we had that conversation, they wrote the song Tim McGraw, and then they and I thought, now that sounds like Taylor. That sounds like a song that a a, a teenager would sing. That sound that sounds good. I kind of like that. And then they wrote a song called Come In with the Rain, that I thought Faith Hill could have a, it was a more mature lyric. And I thought, but it was very well written, very well written. And then from that point, th those, the, in my view, those two songs um, were sort of the, the, the connectors with the previously written batch of songs that I was unsure of. And ma it made them all make sense. Tim McGraw that made, got it. yeah, Tim McGraw made the other ones that I was unsure of all make sense as, as it pertains to Taylor as an artist. Then the next, you know, you just blink, and the next thing you know, here comes Scott Borchetta giving her the deal. And it was just a um I I've I've uh, I'll always say I've I've learned more about the music business from Taylor Swift and Liz Rose than anybody. What I mean, do you learn looking back? Because here you are kind of understandably saying, Liz, you can write with this person, but we've got these professionals here who want to write with you also. Can we squeeze them in? She's saying, no, no, no. And you listened, which I think is impressive because I, I feel like I would have been more aggressive. Hindsight's always 2020. But what's the lesson here? What's the takeaway? Are you more, do you give younger writers a bigger chance now? Or, or like, what's the, what's the takeaway from it? Well, of course I do. Of course I do. And, you know, Liz, would, the thing I, 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 that I really remember about Taylor was one of several writers that were in her in her lane and not doing what she not doing what Taylor did, but she, she was one of several young female writers that Liz just preferred sitting in a room with to write than a professional songwriter. She 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 liked bring, helping those kids tell their story, you know. Yeah, and so. Um, so yes, I do give, I do give a lot of time to up and coming people, um, because because you just never know, and and I, I just uh, the other thing I the, the other point I like to make when I think about Taylor Swift, is that as long as I've been doing this, you know, and I've got a lot of knowledge and I've got a lot of experience, you just never know, no matter. How how much knowledge and experience you have, you, you can, you have the, you have a hundred percent chance of being wrong every single day, no matter how long you've been doing this. That's what I've learned about myself. So 
I, I really try to, um, somebody said, you're not learning if you're talking. So I try to listen. I try to listen intently to what's being presented and, and just seeing if, if I'm missing something or how I can help. Do you feel like I feel that way right now, kind of with some acts that are blowing up on TikTok and all of a sudden this song has a massive moment on TikTok and I go, interesting. I don't even think that's the strongest song in that artist's catalog. Have you been experiencing this at all with some songs that are blowing up on TikTok? And it's like, but we're not the ones to decide what's, what's no. good or not. No, and I, I'm, you know, I, I work with um, uh, a girl named Nina Jenkins. She's my creative director. She's 25 years old. She comes at music totally differently than me. And I, I listened a lot to her and to what she thinks about music. And she's, she's doing the same with me. So I, I don't understand some of the things that are blowing up. But then again, I never understood some of the things that blew up back in the 80s and 90s on radio. You know, it's like, come on, why, why, not, why not that one, you know? I, I, that, that'll go on forever. That's just my personal musical taste. Right. But the one thing I've learned, and I've pro that this probably goes back to Francis more than anybody, is that I have such an appreciation for songwriters who, who have committed to live that life, you know, and, and I, I can't do that. And they can do that and they have to do it. If they can choose to do something else, they should do something else. But most of them, choose to do this because this is what they feel called to do. And I think that those of us in the business who are, who are treating them the right way need to give them all the rope, you know, to, to be who they are as artists so that we have this tapestry background of music to live our lives by. And, and to be in the business side of that, to help bring that music to the public is just a, thrill it's a treat absolutely so you would eventually sell your catalog with uh with joey williams music your first company you would sell it to olay which is now anthem right i'm curious because copyrights are such a hot topic right now and they're selling for such crazy rates do you wish you held on to those rights or did you get a good price for them or what's what's the, what's the deal <laughs> At the time, at the time, I got a multiple that was as high as any multiple that I knew about at that given time with the consultants and, and you know, the lawyers that helped me sell it. So I, I didn't uh, somebody somebody was one of my one of my friends said, you know, Jody, you're going to sell this catalog. And then you're, the, the day you sell it, you're going to you're going to find out if you're that guy who's going to miss the songs or not. Are you going to miss owning them or not? And you never know until you sell. So when I sold, I, I was thinking about that big time, signed the contract, sold the songs. And by that time, Taylor had blown up. The catalog okay. was worth, uh, was, the catalog was worth, worth, worth more than it was three years prior. And I was satisfied with the price I got. And I learned that I didn't have to own the copyrights. I, at, that, at that time, I learned that I didn't have to own the copyrights. I have the memories. Uh, I'll always have those memories as if I do own the copyrights. And then at that time, Olay was super nice to me and kept me engaged, you know, in to, to help them learn the catalog and all that type of thing. But uh, I don't, I don't, 
there, there's a couple of items that I, I wish I could have done different, that I wish I had done differently in the deal, like to participate in just some income after the fact for a period of time. That, that's, that was just a, a feature that I, I didn't think about. And, um, but all that would have meant was for a little more money. And I, I, got, a, I got a nice payday and I, I didn't look back. You didn't. So, but in the press release, when you announce this new company, yeah, I think it mentioned that you're actually you're considering looking at catalogs. You may already be, or you may have already purchased catalogs. How how do you think about? I mean, this is such a crazy time for catalogs. I mean, they're hotter than ever. It feels like right now. How do you think about? Do you think about that every day, searching for new catalogs, or or what 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 would it take for you to invest in a catalog? What what are you looking for? Well, it's it's not the primary thing I do every day. I am interested in the, in it because all of my years at BMI, you you learn where songs are hidden. You know, there are there are there are those writers that wrote for Warner Chapel or for Warner or for uh, or Sony ATV, and and those songs are wrapped up in those big companies. But then there's those writers that wrote uh, and just had little private publishing companies, <clears throat> and they're up in years, and maybe they want to sell maybe now is a good time to sell that little bitty catalog that had three hits in it. You know, those are the ones that I, I am mostly interested in and no, I don't think about it every day. It's, it's just, it's just when I, if there's a little plum catalog that, that uh, feels right, we'll do that. I mean, we, we uh, Warner Chapel, um, you know, is my joint venture partner. Right. And, and I, I did, we, we've, we've done one tiny catalog purchase and uh, in that catalog is a song called Listen to the Radio by Don. There was a, a top five record for Don Williams in the early 80s. Wow. And it, it should be recorded again. And I'm, I'm right. I've, I've, so we, we own that um, with Warner Chapel. And we're doing new, new demos of it. I'm doing a female demo. I'm doing a pop demo. This is a very special song. And, and uh so I'm having fun doing that, but I, it's not something I'm thinking about all the time, but I, I, I probably will a little bit more in the future. That seems so, <clears throat> do you purchase that catalog purely because you go, this is going to be such a fun project to work on, or do you see the financial side of it or a little bit of both or like how, like that catalog, what brought you to purchase? Well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not hypnosis or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm like a little independent guy. Who I'm is? There's hardly running. anyone is at this yeah, point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I want, I want to breathe new life into a really uh, a meaningful copyright personally to me. And I'd like to see somebody else do it. So that's sort of the, my, that's my motivation, you know. Were people like, did that catalog come to you? Did someone bring that to you? Or was that something that you had known about and you went out and found? Um, or that was the, the writer. The writer contacted me who doesn't live in now and, and said, um, I'm, I'm interested in selling this little catalog. And I said, well, I'm about to do a deal with Warner Chapel. Let's see if we can work something out. So that, that is so yeah. cool. Holy cow. So now that you're out of the BMI game, I'm curious to ask, is BMI the best PRO? <laughs> I certainly think so. <laughs> Uh, uh, Nashville, and I can only speak in Nashville because I live in I've lived in Nashville for most of my you know young professional career. They feel like they're the most involved in the community, which is a huge plus. I mean, tell tell me about your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I have specific thoughts on it. Um, a BMI opening an office here predates ASCAPs and CSACs by 
a period of time. So that's probably why that perception is out there because we've been doing it. BMI has been doing it longer here than the competition. And we've, we've really committed to stick the finger up to ASCAP. Basically they, they, they weren't being represented. They felt <laughs> they, they, that's right. And so then Francis comes in and basically, I mean, she just, she, she, she had no competition. So she signed up everybody and she went to Memphis and she went to Muscle Shoals and she went to Atlanta and she went to Austin and rounded up all those writers when nobody else, no, at other, any other PRO was doing it. Now, having said that, me being a publisher and me being very close with people at ASCAP and, and CSAC, it takes all three of us to make the health of performing rights in general work. Um, I, I still think it's better that there's competition. Yeah. I think, I, I think, I think we all make each other better. Um, uh, BMI and ASCAP have collaborated on a, you know, a database, a song database for licensees, which is just incredible. And there's, you know, there's just, there's good in all of it. And what I always told people when they, when I was trying to sign them to BMI, I never really hard sold them. I just said, you know, go to ASCAP, have your meeting with ASCAP, go to CSAC, have your meeting with CSAC. It's kind of like moving to a new town and wanting to uh, create a banking relationship and you go to the banks and this bank gives you a toaster and this bank gives you free checking and this bank does this, but you're not, you're not going to pick because of that. You're going to pick because the person you're talking to you feel has a real connection with you. So even today when I meet a writer and they say, where should I sign? I say, take meetings everywhere and whoever you feel best with, that's where you should go. I personally can navigate the BMI better because I know it from the inside, but if a writer I'm trying to sign has a better relationship with Mike Sistad at ASCAP, I'm going to say, I know Mike really well. Sign with ASCAP. We'll, we'll, make, we'll, we'll make that work just fine. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It, were you looking when you were at BMI, were you kind of observing what was happening at CSEC, what was happening at ASCAP? Because so like right now, for example, I'm working on a project where I'm talking with Jazzrack in Japan, and it is a nightmare. And it is so hard to get anything done, I think because they're the only PRO out there really that to get the licensing we're looking for is extremely difficult. You know, is that one of the advantages that we have, you know, competition in the States or, or what's the, like, like what's the advantage to the, to us having more than one PRO? We're one of the few territories that well, have that. We're, we're all, we're all yet yeah, back to what you said a minute ago. We are all looking like all the PROs are looking at what, what each other is doing. Okay. They're observing, they're, they're looking at their market share. They're looking at how much market share they can afford to have. Um, they, they, they know they need to have enough market share to go into license negotiations so they can make the most money. All these things are, are at play. But the other great thing about Nashville is that at the end of the day, we're all friends. At the end of the day, if there was no pandemic, we're all going to end up at the same bar and have a drink with each other right? You know, sometime during the week. And we're sharing information, and we, I think, if 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 you are a really good PRO employee, your heart is with the writer. You want the best for the writer, no matter what. And so, I think uh, the staffs of all the PROs here are really good as it pertains to that. 
Did you have any advice when Clay Bradley came in? And granted, he has a long career at BMI himself yeah. and an amazing family history. But do, did, he, did you give him any advice when he came into the position? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I hired him before. You know, I hired him as my assistant VP. And then he left to be a manager and a publisher. And he did a right. great job. And then when he came back, yeah, of course, we sat down. And I said, this is, this is how things have changed since you were here last. And this is what you need to be aware of. And these are the... These are the um, things that are working really well. These are the things that need work. <clears throat> so, you know, Clay was um, all ears and, and, you know, listened up to all of that. And I think he's doing a great job. So you said, speaking of change, there, were, there was an article on Billboard where you had said that in, you think that people, there are more songwriters moving to Nashville now who are artists compared yeah. to when you first started out where I guess there were more songwriters moving to town or there were more people who could have been songwriters. Why, why, why do you think that is? And what, what, what does that mean? Like, how is that affecting the community? You know, I, <clears throat> I think part of the reason is sort of the American idol world, social media world that we're living in um, the world that Taylor Swift came up through. Um, everybody thinks that they can do it especially American, especially sort of that American Idol TV star, country artist. Right. Especially. Yeah. And so I think that has, I think that has something to do with it, but, but I don't know. I, I think that um, I would say like half of back in the eighties and early nineties, half the writers that came to town just wanted to write songs for the artists. And they really didn't aspire to be um, performing songwriters. And then it just sort of flipped and now there's very few, I think, that don't want to be artists, you know, and I, I, I kind of like that because because the the ones that turn out to be really good, they've got a another like a sixth sense that that is relatable to another artist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they're 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 an artist, and if it's sort of like look at Red Akins. Red Akins was an artist, but then he turned out to be a massively successful songwriter. Well, he when he's in the room writing with an artist, he was one, and he is one, and he knows how to communicate with them. And it's a it's a it's an extra tool in his toolkit. What do you look for? Because I think you could sign any new writer on the block. Any young artist would be thrilled to sign with Jody Will Jody Williams. And you just signed Payne Porter, who I'm a massive fan of. Oh, good. She's a good friend of mine. But what was it about her that convinced you that she was the real deal and, you know, she she had the goods? She has a lyrical sense that is that has this sort of classic songwriting element to it. She's a she's a completely contemporary female writer in today's world, but she's got a sophistication in her lyric that's a little bit better than everybody else, I think. Uh, once again, my opinion, but I, that's what I think. That's what counts. And, that's that's and what it, we're here for. And it and it doesn't and it doesn't hurt that she um, is an incredible vocalist. She I is mean, an amazing vocalist. She yeah. notes yeah. and just she is just uh, you know a, a lot of those great singers can sing a B song and make it sound like an A minus, you know. <clears throat> um, Peyton, I haven't heard I haven't heard a lot of I haven't heard a lot of C songs from Peyton. I've heard some B songs, but she, but but the the ones you know the ones that that are just right that she's singing so well you just can't beat them. So I think we're you know we're going to spend this year um, developing this with her, 
And uh, I think Nina and I are going to learn probably more from her than she's going to learn from us, to be honest with you. She's, she doesn't really need a lot of developing at all. She's there as a writer. And I, I just am I'm nuts about her. Are you the kind of person that do you trust your gut? Like the first time you sat down with her, did you have a sense of I'm going to work with this person? Or was or do you take a lot of meetings and you go to a lot of rounds and hear a lot of demos and then you go, okay, we're going to we're going to do this. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't have that feeling with Peyton the first time I heard her. Nina brought her in and I thought this girl's really good. But we were looking at two or three other guys and girls to sign to sort of round out our roster. And it took me about um, probably three or four months to to ring up Nina one day and just say, I think we should do this with Peyton. She doesn't sound like any of these other folks. And, and, and I, we, we had breakfast with her and she came in for another couple of meetings just so we could get to know each other. And I thought, you know, we can, we can do this. She's, she's super, she's super smart besides talent. Lord have mercy. Peyton Porter is a smart girl. Well, be on the lookout for Peyton Porter because I think big things are coming. What's it like working with your son in the publishing world? Because your son is signed to you guys, right? Driver Williams. Um, yes. What, what, I mean, what's what? I mean, you did a JV with him with with Riverhouse, if I'm not mistaken. So I guess there's maybe some split. Um, maybe that was intentional, but you know, is it harder, easier to work with your son? It is. It is so much fun, and it is so easy. <laughs> I, I just can't tell you. You know, uh, I, I'm having the uh, I, and, I, and I, I think he would say the same thing too. I'm um, the the interesting thing is that Lynn Oliver, who owns Riverhouse, and I worked at BMI in the mid '90s together. She was working in the Atlanta office of BMI, and I was in Nashville. And we've been friends for this long. Then she ends up signing Driver, and then I start this company. And I called her one day and I said, "Can we share Driver? I mean, will this be okay?" And and she said, she said, "Oh." Oh my gosh, I thought you were going to call and tell me you were just taking him away. And I said, no, I mean, he, he loves writing for you. I said, I think we could do this together and it would be a really, a really cool thing going forward. Let's, let's try it. And so she, she was so great about it. And, and um, Zeb Luster over there yep. and, and Kayla, they're, they're all, they're great partners that we interact with weekly and uh, we're having a good time. That's so cool. Why is, not to jump around, but there's a couple other things I want to talk about. Why yeah. is Texas so important to you? You were you know, a key part of opening the Austin, Texas office for BMI. And if I'm not mistaken, are you an honorary Texan? Is that true? I think I am. I think the governor gave me the honorary Texan deal. I've got a plaque. Oh, it's at my, it's at, I'm at home. It's at my office. Um, yeah, I, um, when I was at BMI, um, the second time I was at BMI as a writer rep, Roger Sovine, who was my boss, took me to Austin for the first time. And I had been selling all these records of Jerry Jeff Walker and Asleep at the Wheel and all these people. And now I was going to get to meet him and really know him. So when I went down there, I was already predisposed to being, you know, a super fan. And um, I got to know all of these people and their families and the, their managers and I just fell in love with the town. I mean, I love, I love Texas people. They're, they're, it, it is another country down there altogether. They, they think a different way and they've got a different, they've got a different um, of view of how they approach life, I think, than, than a lot of other, uh, especially in the creative realm. Um, and I, I learned, I've learned, I've got a lot of friends there and have learned so much about, about true musicianship and 
songwriters and all that through that culture down there. It's and great. do you feel like there needs to be a BMI office here or, you know, it's crazy that, you know, we're well, going to have a bigger presence here. I knew how much money we were spending out of the national office to service Austin. And I thought, well, if there was ever a time to just sort of say, let's, let's just put some boots on the ground there and not, let's not, you know, open an office with a dozen people. Let's hire a guy and see how it goes. So we found the right guy in Mitch Ballard. He opened, we found the, God, we found the coolest little office on South Congress, right in the middle of all the restaurants and everything, clubs, right a half a block away from the Continental Club down there. And it is, it, it's turned out to be a really great thing for BMI um, and, and sort of the future of BMI. Yeah. So cool. Do you think, because I think early on in the pandemic, you know, people would say, uh, I don't want to write on Zoom with people that I haven't met yet because of the weird chemistry. I only want to write with people that I know. Yeah. Or, you know, then they would say, you know, I'm not writing on Zoom at all. I'm just going to hold off. Eventually, people start writing on Zoom. Then I think doors started opening up where, where they were more accepting to write with other people over Zoom because it was the only way that things were going to get done. Do you, would you push your writers to write on Zoom right now? Do you push them to try new things in that sense? Do you think Zoom writing is going to stick around? Any insight on the type, type of songs we've been getting from that process? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. The, I started my company basically on March 1st of last year. And right. seven, seven days later, we were locked down. I, I I knew Nina Jenkins. I'd had I'd had three meetings with. I barely knew her. Here's this girl who left a great job at Curb Publishing to go to work with me, and now we're locked down. So um, we had no choice but, you know, to like every other writer at every other company to write on Zoom. Um, some writers were more skittish to get out of the house because we didn't know what the deal was. We didn't know how careful we really had to be. So most everybody, I'd say half of my writers wrote in person. Um, and we're very careful. And then the other half pretty exclusively to Zoom. And then uh, we made a decision uh, coming back from Christmas this year to, to, we have an office and we had some writers that wanted to write and we opened up the office for them to write. But in January, we thought, let's, let's, close, let's close our office to writers. And Nina and I will go in and, and we'll work, but we're not gonna ha have you know, in-office meetings or writing appointments there. And um, and I think, you know, we're going to kind of play, just keep playing it by year as the weeks, by, by year as the uh, weeks go by. Anything, even if it's super subtle, is there anything you've noticed about like a Zoom song versus a, an in-person song? To me, I would think a Zoom song, maybe there's more intent to a lyric or, or something. You're maybe thinking more in your head about something. Is, is any of that translating to the music or is it really hard to say? I think that's a, I think that's a question for the writers more than me. I, I, as I, I don't see a big difference. I just, I just hear the, you know, I just know between three and five o'clock, my inbox is going to start filling up with songs from my writers. And I, I love that time of day. I can't wait to listen and respond and talk about the songs. Um, I think my guys and girls have gotten so good at it. You know, they're just so good. It, it's become the norm. And, and they're going to, some of them are going to continue doing it. Nathan Chapman is just, you know, incredible, uh, incredible. Best of the best. He's, he's, he just, he just doesn't skip a beat. Zoom, he doesn't skip a beat. And, and, you know, all, but all of them, all of them are just great. Absolutely. How often do you pick up a guitar? Do you pick up a guitar ever still? Cause, cause you're originally a musician and guitar player, right? Yep. There you go. Is that I got them right here. I got them. I got them all. I've got them surrounding me here in my office. 
Me too. I've got mine. I've got my telly right here. This is, uh, uh, they're, they're all over. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. I, I love, I play guitar on and off all day long at the office in here too. I love it. You, like I pick a guitar every day. Like I'm a, like to me, I think it's interesting how people like that. There are people in the industry who aren't musicians first. Obviously there are, and it makes sense. But I mean, do you, does that make an approach with anything? Like, I think I can listen to a demo or recording and give advice on guitar playing and that other people have no idea what I'm talking about. And a guitar player goes, Oh yeah, great. Like to me, I, I like, I love that. I have that ability and that knowledge. So that's something that you, that you cherish. Well, I, I, I love that. And I, I will, I won't hesitate to, when I hear a song to say, you know, like right now, people don't want to put bridges in songs. I think that's a mistake. I think they should put bridges in songs and I think they should change keys. And I think they should use all the colors in the Crayola box of tricks, you know, instead of the three colors that sort of the bro country era was so exemplary of, you know? Um, and I think we're the music is changing right now. So I, I love making like, especially musical, you know, suggestions. Um, Absolutely, yeah. It's fun. Holy cow. Jody, we've covered so much here. What's been unsaid? The one thing that comes to mind, and I, I, I hit on it once, but I'll, I'll hammer it home. Um, there's the Nashville music community. There is nothing like it. We could not do our job at our publishing company without all the other publishers agreeing to collaborate with us. And they would say the same thing. And that is such a wonderfully unique, supportive thing that we've got going on here in Nashville. And I, I, that's, that makes it so much fun for me. Absolutely. And we've learned that there should be more bridges in country music and songwriting. I think, I think, I think bridges are the next big thing. The next big thing. Bridges <laughs> are going to make a, a comeback in a big way. Yeah. And, and, and be on the lookout for them. Start writing some more bridges. That's right. Have you ever sat in with Eric Church and your son uh, on stage? Has he ever called you up? Have you ever played on stage with Eric Church? I have never. I have, I've stood on the stage with, with my son and Eric Church and the band, but I've, 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 I, would, I would melt. I, I, would, I would never make it out there. I couldn't do that. Would you ever play a gig? Do you ever play a gig in normal times? What would it take to get Jody Williams out for a gig? To play oh my live? gosh. Well, I've, it, it, it would take a lot. It would take a lot. I'm a, I'm, I'm a private musician. A private musician. That's how I feel I am. That, that's yeah. what I do. I play in my apartment. Nobody else needs to hear it. That's, that's okay. That, that, that's what I do. I, I appreciate this opportunity. And, and you're, once again, you do a great job and a great service to the community. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. That, that's so kind. Well, stay well out there and stay warm and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. See ya. Episode 53, Jody Williams. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks again to Jody for taking the time to come onto the show. By the way, if you want to see something crazy, Google Martha White flattened Scruggs at the Opry. These old videos blow my mind. Musically, they are incredible, but they are such artifacts of a different time, especially the old Martha White commercials. These things are unreal. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. By the way, if you want more info on publishing, if you're like, I want more podcasts about publishing, 
check out our episode with Beth Laird from last season. She gives tons of great insight. And once again, check out Songtown on Songwriting. This is a really great podcast and their most recent episode on breaking lyric rules. Everybody wants to do it. Few do. Few have the guts to break the rules of lyric writing. Okay, that's it. That's all I got. We'll see you next week. Bye.